Welcome to Energy Matters in the Classroom with Robin Berlinski. This is the show that highlights and celebrates the kinetic and potential energy in classrooms across the globe and why it matters. We are heard nationally in your favorite podcast sites where you'll also find a library of all of our shows. And if you happen to live in Charleston, South Carolina, we're heard Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on the iconic 1250 WTMA with the invaluable assistance of John Quincy. And here she is, a force of nature, Robin Berlinski. Hey, Ron. Robin, welcome to your show. Thank you. Do we have any business before I introduce our special guest? We do. As always, remember, follow me on Instagram at Robin underscore Berlinski. We do lots of prizes, giveaways, and fun information. Excellent. Well, now, you know, in the introduction, we say uh, classrooms across the globe, and we are, in fact, today going across we the globe. We are. This is very exciting. And Donna, I'm going to read your whole bio here because I think it's a fascinating journey that other people might go, well, if she can do it, I can do it, right? I love it. Donna Fields, originally from New York City, became a teacher in New Mexico. A decade later, considered returning home, but took a bit of a detour on the plane back to Spain, which is where we are today. Well, where you are today. And more than 20 years later is still there. She's been a primary, secondary, and university teacher, gives workshops on empowering students in their own learning, is an author of books on dynamic activities to help content and language learners transition, transition, I can't even say it, more fluidly into new information, and has a series of books on creating phenomenon-based learning projects What is now becoming mandatory in many countries in Europe, she lives in Valencia with one house on the beach, another in the mountains, a dog, six wildcats from the hills, and is extremely happy. Probably because I'm guessing there's not a husband involved, and that's why you're (laughs) really happy. I love it. Is Donna still there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, yes. Now we, can. we now we can. I was trying to be funny, and then I realized well, that might be well, very there's insult. a delay. We are, you know, what are you six hours ahead? Um, I want to say, Ron, that I met Donna. I was a guest on her podcast, and we talked a lot about my work in the arts and um, energy, and it was fascinating. And I'm so excited to have her here because there's so much that she's going to share with our listeners. Um, about what she does. And, you know, I teach at the College of Charleston, as you know, and um, the first day of class just was yesterday. So I'm coming in on a high of being with juniors from the College of Charleston who are so excited to meet the the students that they're going to spend this semester with. And something I notice um, when they come to me, they've had classes prior to my class and scaffolding is a huge part of their journey before they get to me. And it's Ron, I'm going to fill you in a little because so for what, those lay yeah. people like me, what does scaffolding yeah, we're not, mean? We're not building a building. It's an instructional method that progressively moves students toward greater independence and understanding during their learning process. So Donna's going to dive into that because that's her her uh, sweet spot, her golden circle. And I'm excited for her to be here. But Donna, I want to say thank you for having me on your show and welcome to mine. Oh my goodness. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, um, Robin, I'm just so excited to be here, and um, I've been working on my voice, you know, all yeah. the vocalizations, because <laughs> your voice it. is so lovely. Oh, yeah. and you're so kind. I want to, before we talk about everything, I have a question about the, the plane ride when you diverted yourself to Spain. Like, you were on your way back to New York or New Mexico, and you, like, how did you make a decision, like, I think I'll go to Spain? 
It was just that I was going a little crazy. I knew I needed a change. And it wasn't real that I was really, I wasn't necessarily thinking I was going to go back to New York. I just needed a big change. And I was exploring all the schools and all the positions that I could have taken. And at that time, this is more than 20 years ago, at that time, the Spanish embassy was really big on trying to get us, the Americans, over to Spain. Because you you all know that the orientation in the States is often to um, Central and South America. And so they were trying to get us to include information about Spain in our classrooms. So they pulled us over there with a lot of scholarships. And I said, well, all right, I'm going to go to Spain for a little bit. And I went for a month. I had a scholarship for a month. And it was incredible. And I thought, all right, then I just need maybe a month more to learn Spanish. Because at that time, it was really important to know Spanish in New Mexico. And I got a job at what is called an American school in Valencia, and I got a two-year contract. And 22 years later, I'm not at that school, but I'm still in Spain, still learning a bit of Spanish every day. I love it. So, That's a beautiful yeah. journey. And so tell us what you do there. Well, I'm a teacher. First and foremost, I'm a teacher. And Robin, you can appreciate that because that's the orientation, right? So no matter what else I've been doing, I think of the, I see the world as a teacher. And when I say that, it, I'm going to, I'm going to use a caveat because I consider myself a facilitator of learning. And it's a really important difference because when I speak with other teachers, they really take their role seriously. And especially in Spain, it's very conventional, very traditional teaching here. They were taught by teachers talking to them. And when they became teachers, their mentors told them that they should talk. And what I'm trying to ask them to understand is that we all learn better when we are participants in the learning process. And so I say when I go into the classroom, I am prepared to help the students learn. I don't go in there to teach. And that is the huge difference. That's what I do. That's a great way to look at it. So are you, are you teaching these teachers at a college level? I teach preschool, primary, secondary, and university teachers. I don't teach them. I work with them in workshops. So yeah, I'm asked to go on all different levels at academies. What I do is what we were talking about before, scaffolding. And most people are scared of that word. I personally do not like the term scaffolding either because it doesn't make sense to me. It's not that we're creating a structure necessarily. What we're doing is what Ron was saying before in the bio, we're helping learners transition into new knowledge. And so I like to say I'm giving students a helping hand. And I like that image. Some people feel that it, it could be used as a condescending term. So, you know, we can't please everybody. But if you can get the concept behind that, I create activities that use all different learning styles so that someone is going to feel seen and heard in the classroom and learn a little more fluidly. I love it. And I've seen some of those on your website. So we're going to get to that in a minute. Is this from your okay. own creation or did somebody teach you how to do this? Or I, I find this fascinating because this is, I, I don't want to use the word paradigm shift, but maybe that, that's what it, you've taken yourself <laughs> out of your comfort level. Besides this move, which we'll talk about towards the end of the show, because I'm fascinated by that. But everything you're doing is very, I don't know, avant-garde. Is that the right word? Uh, I mean, you're really taking yourself out of a comfort level and, and, and taking things to another level, if I may say. And what do I know? But I mean, I, I'm the, remember, I'm the listener that wants to know more. 
Well, that's wonderful, Ron. I mean, that's what we want is to be curious. And the, and what I do is help students become curious if that's not their natural way of, of looking at new knowledge okay. in a school. And there are, there are a lot of students like that. I think that what happened is when I became a teacher in New Mexico, and I had a very interesting mentor teacher, you know, you have to go do a practice, uh, a practice before you get your certificate. And she was about to get married into high society. I mean, high society. And so I spent a year with her listening to her wedding plans. That's not really conducive to learning how to give students <laughs> lessons. Yes. So when I first walked into the classroom, I realized I knew nothing, nothing. And so what I did is had to, I worked also in a charter school. The first school was a charter school. And thank goodness, because they did not allow us to have public uh, editors books. We had to create all of our activities by ourselves. And most of the teachers found a book that they liked and used it. What I did is the population that was looking at me, the population of students really was what inspired me to create these activities more than 20 years ago. Um, it was a population, it was the lowest economic level in New Mexico at that time. Our school, which was a beautiful new school, was next to the state prison. Next to the state prison, nothing else anywhere. And a lot of the students' relatives were in that prison. So I'm explaining to you that that is their reality. School was not their priority. Their go going home was more of an adventure than anything safe. And so when they came into my class, I was looking at students who really didn't appreciate the learning, didn't really know how to read. English was their first language. They didn't really speak it very well. I mean, it was a lot of challenges. So what my challenge became was getting them exciting, excited about learning. I grew up in a whole community where learning was pretty revered. And we knew that the more we went to school, the more we climbed up the ladder in education, the more opportunities we had. And I thought that's how everyone grew up. And this was you know, pretty much of a shock, realizing that these students did not have that either in their social life or at home. So I took it as my mission, not really understanding that I was doing that, to first teach them to read, help them to speak, and help them to try to enjoy school. And these activities grew out of that. And how many teachers would walk away from uh, such a challenge? They'd say, oh, I, this, this is... I'm not willing to put my uh, investment into this, and yet you really jumped in and I'm sure changed a lot of lives in the process. It's possible, Ron. I think that there are more teachers like me than we think. I think that there, you know, there's a whole stereotype about teachers. Um, teachers are overworked. Teachers do become frustrated. There are teachers who scream at their students who don't have the best intentions, and that's unfortunate. But I think that my experience, and probably Robin would say this as well, hopefully, is that most teachers are dedicated to their craft and they love their students. And maybe they don't have the same challenges as I did and they maybe are forced to use edit editors' books and they have administrators that are on top of them more and so there might be less creativity. But I think that most teachers have them, are dedicated enough to try to do something. Yeah. Robin, what do you think? I 100%, 100% agree. And, um, you know, I teach, like I said, I teach um, students that are in their junior year, pre-service teachers. They're going to be early childhood, so pre-K through third grade. And they're so excited. They're so, they haven't been in a classroom yet. And we, we see them as this excited, new, young, vibrant energy going out to begin their professional journey in the classroom. 
And we don't want them to lose that, right? Like, so I always tell my students, when you feel you're losing it, you know, reach out to someone because that energy is so needed. And I agree with you. I think there are more teachers that do keep that energy and that positivity in their classroom. Um, Donna, I want to jump into this um, helping students become curious because I love curiosity. I think curiosity is a thing we need to tap into more, even as adults, like being lifelong learners. So what's an example? Like, Tell us some things that you do or did early on to make learning fun. What I can think of, this doesn't necessarily have to do with scaffolding activities, but it does have to do with agency. And the other thing I really believe in is to use the classroom to help students develop their own agency, which means that when they leave the classroom, I also want them to feel confident. I want them to feel empowered, and I want them to be a little more independent. A lot of times we go into the classroom, and if the teacher is telling you what to do all the day, and if your parents are telling you what to do at home, then you follow what they say. You don't really develop those skills that help you make choices and help you uh, pick yourself up if you've made a choice that isn't optimum. So I think one of the things I most enjoyed that I did that was different than a lot of teachers is in math class, I had a, I had a partner teacher and she was incredible. I mean, just incredible. And what we did is she took all the students that were really high in math and I took the ones that were low in math. And I found um, a system, a math system. It doesn't have a name. I don't think it even exists anymore. I, I hope I could find it for someone that's interested And what I did is I taught one student an equation and I asked them to go teach someone else. And that, and then they made a group and they made more groups and each one taught the other person. Now this isn't nothing new. It's nothing incredibly original, but nobody had showed me how to do that. And it wasn't really done in most classes. And when I saw their faces, when I saw how they understood things because their classmate had explained it to them in a way that made sense to them, it just, the room light lit up. And I saw it over and over again. And we did that for about five years. And every year it got better. So that's really that's cool. Example. Yeah, th- yeah. They say the best form of understanding is teaching it to someone else. Yes. I'm yes. fascinated by something, though. You have already said these kids were from a very, uh, I don't know if impoverished is the right word, but a real challenging background. So you're helping them in the classroom. But what was it like? with what they were getting from their parents or parent at home. You're having to deal with the whole family structure. Were they, were the parents part of the equation or this is just some magic you did only in the classroom? Um, Ron, it's an interesting question and I don't know how many teachers have my experience. Um, I had a very challenging parent group, very challenging. It was, again, parents that were either, they drank at home, they were doing drugs, they were not the best friends with the law, Um, they were angry, they were depressed and frustrated with life. And I say that because when that happens, often they need someone to direct their anger, direct their frustration. And in my case, they chose me and they chose other teachers. It was sort of a general, it was sort of a general feeling in the school because of the the population. And so it wasn't easy. There were a couple of parents that were wonderful, but most of them were very antagonistic. And I was a really new teacher. And as I said, I hadn't had a lot of really, really productive training And it colored a lot of my career. It colored a lot of the way I looked at teaching for many, many years. And when I've spoken to other teachers, they don't all have that experience. And I'm glad. But I don't know, Robin, what is your your relationship with parents on the whole? Oh, my gosh. You're right. It depends where you are. 
And, you know, just like in life, people want to be heard and seen. And early on, I think I learned how to relate to people in my parent-teacher conferences or the first time I would ever communicate with a parent was always to tell them something great about their child. And I would reach out the first week of school for no reason, only to say, I'm so glad your child is in my room and I can't wait to get to know your child. And I look forward, you know, we're partners in this. So I think a lot of it is setting it up at the very beginning. Um, I didn't work in, in as challenging an environment as you did. So I can't really speak to those levels of concern, but I do think people just appreciate being heard and knowing somebody sees them. I think that's very important, Robin. And actually, at one point, I called a friend of mine who was a mother and I said, what do these parents want? What do they really want from me? And she said exactly that. She said, I think, Donna, I think they just need to be heard. And that helped calm me down. And at that point, I just started listening to them and it really improved the whole situation. It wasn't perfect, but it improved. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, you... I want when you first started in Spain, were you teaching children or you, who spoke Spanish only? Like, were you trying to? How did you communicate with parents early on when you first moved there? Very interesting. Well, I worked at an American school, which is sort of a network of schools all around the world. And what they usually do is hire people for two years, and then they often before I'm not sure if they still do that. They would pay for you to go to another country and teach two more years in another country, and you could really do a circuit of the whole world. And what I did is it was a particular school. It was run completely privately. And, and that's unfortunate in one sense because we had non-educators who were making educational decisions. But working with them language-wise, um, in Spain, parents are not welcome in the classroom. You don't have a lot of contact with them, which is very strange because in the States, you have a lot of contact with parents and you want to foster that, just what you were saying, Robin. And so it was an American school. English was the language, supposedly, of most of the classes. I didn't know Spanish when I first came. I learned it. But luckily, I was teaching high school by that time. I taught primary in New Mexico, and I taught high school in my first school here. So the students understood everything. Their speech wasn't wonderful because, again, I was working in in an atmosphere that was very traditional. So they listened all day. And their, their speech was not very fluid. But I didn't have any problems communicating with the students. The parents was more challenging. The parents were more challenging. And I needed interpreters in the beginning. The counselor at the school used to help with that. Until okay. I, could. I used to think that I was, you know, so amazing that I went from teaching <laughs> first grade to teaching fifth grade. You went from teaching what in early childhood to high school? Wow. In a different country? I think you win the award. <laughs> I needed a big change, and I love high school. I love it. The kids, I mean, I tell teachers all the time when they're frustrated by their students, I said, high school students, it is their job to challenge everything you do, and they do their job brilliantly. (laughs) All you have to do is be that wall and say, you know, whatever you need, I will answer you. you But you need to have your limits really clearly defined. So I don't mind if they challenge me. They needed to do it respectfully. They needed to do it in a calm, as calm as they could. But again, they are teenagers. They have hormones going on all over them. But I love their personalities. And I love the fact that they felt they could challenge authority. Why not? Why do we need to believe what a teacher is saying? Do us a favor, please, and kind of juxtapose between the American education system you're familiar with and, and what you found in Spain. And is it, is it that similar? Or are they diametrically opposed? Give us some examples. 
Um, it's not diametrically opposed. I wish it were. I have a lot of work in Spain because it's very traditional. And what I mean by that is, hopefully you're getting sort of an idea of how I see education. I want students to have agency. I want them to be more independent in the classroom. I want them to participate more. And in the Spanish system, they need to memorize more than anything. The teacher talks to them from preschool to secondary, from high to high school and into university. The teacher will speak most of the day, literally. But I found that in the States as well. And I was just speaking with my niece who's in her 20s, and she said her teacher spoke to her most of her schooling. So where does that change? It changes in little pockets all over the world. This is not, it's not um, specific to Spain or to the States. I mean, I've, I've given workshops pretty much all over the world and found very innovative schools and very traditional schools. And unfortunately, more traditional, which is why they hire me to try to help them recreate more activities in the classroom. Does that make sense? Yes. It does. I'm curious, have you had any pushback from uh, new things you wanted to bring into the classroom? Well, if they hire me, that means either the teachers want me to present activities that are different or the administrators. But pushback, a lot of resistance. I'm not sure if that means the same to you. It does. It gets Okay. So, yes, a lot of resistance. These activities mean that they need to restructure their lessons. They're not happy about that. These activities mean that they need to create, spend more time at home creating them. They're not happy about that either. They see, they see, and they say to me in the workshops, oh, I love these activities, but I can't do it. I have no time to create them, and I have no time to change my curriculum. Um, so, go ahead, Robin. No, you go. You go. Uh, no, no, I was just going to say it becomes frustrating. I get so excited when I'm with them because there's so much energy, and they get so excited about seeing a difference. But then when they don't change, that becomes disappointing, you know, kind of frustrating. It's something that I have to assimilate. Yeah, and we've all been there. We go to those conferences, we get all fired up, and then you get back to work, yeah. you're busy, you know, you get caught up in the routines. And I'm glad you talked about that because I, before we run out of time, your website is chock full of ideas and lessons. And I want teachers <gasps> to be able to access that because it matters. Can you share how teachers and even parents can find you, your website, your Instagram and all that? Yeah, thanks so much, Robin, because I love these activities. I'm working on them all the time and uploading new ones. And my website is scaffoldingmagic.com. And there's a place where I have all my activities and I'm uploading new ones all the time. And I also do a lot of distance work. So a lot of my work since the pandemic, especially, is our online workshops. So we can talk and create some online workshops with schools, which I would love. Because one of the things I do, which is different from other trainers, is just what you're saying, Robin. We go to a conference and we think, oh, amazing ideas. And we never change because we always go back to our habits. That's our comfort zone. But what I do is I schedule it so I give a workshop and then I go in the next time and do coaching. And that means that I am in the classroom with the teacher helping them implement these activities. And we do a series of three workshops and three coaching sessions. And that's when we see major changes in their teaching. That's brilliant. So I would love to do that. Yeah, yeah. I love that. And um, I'm going to do a shameless plug. Um, I was on your podcast. I was a guest on your podcast, which I love. So um, please check out all of her podcasts because they are all amazing. And um, make sure you follow Donna because this is really important. And I love your 
you know, coaching the the method you use because we need to keep that slow drip going. It can't be just a shock to your system and then you go back to habit. So this this way of doing it is so key because you keep getting it, you keep getting reminded and then it pushes you and pushes you until you finally do change and then you see the results and then you just keep going because you're so excited about those results. That's it. There you go. Well said, Robin. Yes. Bam. <laughs> so many so many brilliant comments on the show between the two of you. So Donna, Aren't we awesome? I'm telling you, yeah, so awesome. Uh, and you really are. The question is, uh, it sounds like you found your happy place. Uh, you're probably staying in Spain. And when should we come out for a visit? Yeah, we're going to book our flights. Oh, my goodness. I have a house <laughs> on the beach. It's yours oh when gosh. you're ready. Come Stop. on out. Oh, yeah. gosh. Okay, I'm calling you after the show. So <laughs> let me ask you, uh, just for clarification, you mentioned that these are, or this is an American school. Now, when I think of an American school, I typically think of People are in the service and their kids go to these schools. But it sounds to me like there are plenty of locals who attend these schools. What's the criteria for, for getting admitted to these schools? Oh, okay, Ron, it's very simple. First of all, I'm not at that school anymore, but it's economics, money. It's very expensive. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. So there are military people. They do have um, a little bit of a connection with the military, but it's mostly the upper class. I mean, I went from the lowest um, economic class in New Mexico to the highest in Spain. And there are challenges on both sides, um, but yeah, that's what. But I work. I work in the public schools now, which is means I'm working in all the different spheres, economics, and that makes it very interesting. So, if you look back on your very storied history, and it really is very cool, what are you most proud of? What am I most proud of? Oh my goodness! Sterilizing the six cats that come into my house. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> I know, I'm so sorry. That just came up because it was a big thing. I didn't want more, you know, I didn't want 500 cats near my house. Um, wow. You know, working with these schools and, and seeing the teachers, the seeing the students finally having more pride in the fact that they could actually learn when they felt that at first they were never going to be able to learn either English or the content or anything that was put in front of them. The different learning styles has really made, made a big difference. But in the short time we have left, do you have a favorite teacher from your past that uh, is so memorable and maybe one that sets you on the path to education? That is a lovely question, Ron. I love that. And I actually wrote to him. I'm not sure if he ever got the letter, but when I was in, I think, eighth grade, his name was Mr. Hansen. He was my math teacher. And he was so patient with me. And I was frustrated as, you know, I had a very tumultuous upbringing and I took it out on my teachers in school. And he said to me one day, Donna, I love your voice and I don't need to hear it all the time. And let's just change the dynamic. And he, he said it so calmly, I fell in love with him. And I remember him all these years later. What grade so. was that? It was eighth grade. Wow. Eighth grade, eighth grade math. All right, in 15 seconds, tell us again how uh, people can get in touch with you, and then we're going to have to say goodbye. Sadly, the show flies by. I know. It this has flown by. Yeah, just um, you can go to my website, scaffoldingmagic.com. There's a contact page there, and I would love to hear from you, and we can chat about what we can create together. Donna Fields, yeah. thank you so much. You've been listening to Energy Matters in the Classroom with Robin Berlinski. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. We'd love your feedback at thelearningring.com where you can also reach out to Robin with questions or comments and even chances to win prizes. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.